0: Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to be with you tonight in this satsang where we are closing to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it is a dramatic end, it is a terrible end, both frightening and formidable in a spiritual way. And uh, we are again looking at the words, actions, teachings of Jesus as they can be understood from the standpoint of yoga and especially of the Tantric yoga. And we are at the point where Jesus, in a very wonderful display of omniscience, he simply sends two of his disciples to go and he gives them some synchronicities some signs which are almost impossible to fake or to prearrange in which they see a person they follow that person they go to the master of the house of that where that person is going and there they ask for the passover dinner to be set for Jesus specifically and uh, miraculously that person is there That person says, yes, I'm honored, and all that, like things fit as by a miracle. I'm saying it again, this is the result of a phenomenon of omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence at the level of Ajna Chakra. And Jesus being now very close to the grand finale of his life, now he manifests more and more his divine nature. So they prepared a room somewhere on the upper floor or this for this, for the evening. Remember, this would be the evening of Thursday. This would be Thursday evening, as today is a Thursday evening. And then the text continues. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. It's very interesting that this translation of the Bible, which is uh, an officially authorized Bible, so it's a translation which is made according to the highest scholarly standards, they use the word reclined. Reclining is like this. It's lying down. We all have seen in Hollywood movies that the Romans were having endless parties, whole night parties and so on, by reclining. There was even a wild theory that the Romans were overeating hugely, and then they were vomiting and overeating and vomiting and overeating and vomiting. That was definitely not the case of Jesus and his disciples. These people had a very ascetic mentality, a very Puritanic and ascetic mentality. So it was not for the purpose of overeating that lying down on the left elbow... It stretches this part of the body and it places the stomach in an extended position where the stomach can get the maximum volume of food that it can physically tolerate. So for the Romans, this reclining was a hedonistic thing, which they were doing as inherited from the Greek culture. And it was simply the manifestation of a typical decadence. The Roman Empire, as well as the Greek civilization... They were highly, highly decadent and rotten, very badly decayed. And this kind of reclining banquets, they were a typical manifestation of that. But it's interesting that the text uses for Jesus' meeting also reclining. Like sometimes Jewish people meeting in their meetings, they were sitting but they were also sitting in a comfortable way and sometimes simply reclining. They did not have standard civilized positions like a 19th century British supper where everybody is dressed up with a suit and a tie and they sit up straight at the table and they have a standards of it. The uh, atmosphere seems to be pretty relaxed, pretty, not not very conventional and stiff. When you say that Jesus and the others, they reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. It is clearly, it is very clear, that as Jesus is getting closer and closer to the tragic events, to the formidable events that follow, he is more and more aware, not only of what is going to happen, but of the metaphysical meaning of what is going to happen. And that because he says, I have eagerly desired to eat, what's uh, so special about this Passover that they eat some unleavened bread, and maybe they drink some wine. And like, how what how delicious was this food? What, what was so desirable? Obviously, he does not speak about good food and a great atmosphere, because actually he is agonizing in his fear that he is going to be crucified, that he is going to have a hard time. So it's not because of this. It's because he somehow knows that this meal, which is conventionally called the Last Supper, that this meal is going to have metaphysically, symbolically, philosophically, a super great meaning. Because this meal is the start of what is called the New Covenant. God has made a covenant, and this covenant in the Western culture, in Europe, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern culture, it was spearheaded by the Jews. Neither the Greeks, nor the Romans, nor the Vikings, nor anybody else that you can think of, nobody had a covenant with God, because first of all, nobody was aware of the existence of one supreme God. A God which towers over all the other deities. A God of the gods. A God of the deities. The Greeks, the Romans, everybody was stopping at the deities. For them, the supreme authority was Zeus, Ares, Aphrodite, the deities, the planetary gods, and some others of the same kind. Therefore, first of all, nobody could have a covenant with God, with the one God, with the supreme God, because they didn't know about the existence of the supreme God. In the Jewish culture, which is the first which broke through in the Western I'm saying always in the Western, because in the Eastern, the Indian culture is, uh, for example, the Hindu mysticism, is very convoluted, and the appearance of this oneness, like in Vedanta, that there is a supreme consciousness called Brahman, which corresponds to the supreme self of the human being, which is called Atman. And this, it appeared somehow, discreetly, along the centuries. There is not a person like the prophet Abraham or like Moses or like Jesus who comes openly and says, now it starts, now I give to you a connection with the one God. It kind of infiltrates itself and it gradually appears and it's difficult to say like today it was not there and tomorrow it is there. When did it really appear when the people talk about Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, but who says that Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva are three aspects of one and the same cosmic consciousness? That Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva are not three gods. They are the three Murti, the three faces of one and the same. For some people, this understanding does not exist in the old Vedic and Hindu Sanatana Dharma, and for some, It is crystal clear. And thus, you cannot make the history of this in India and or with the Tao of Lao Tzu, because the Tao is just one, of course, is the absolute concept. And that's why we don't try to go there. We don't try to make a competition between the Jewish mysticism, the Hermetic tradition and the others, and... Taoism or Hinduism, Vedanta or other things. We, that's not the purpose of doing this. And that's why I keep saying in the Western, in the Western metaphysics, starting with the Persians, Babylonians and so on and everything which was in the Mediterranean area and the, the Greek civilization, the Roman Empire, in all those areas, the Jews were the pioneers. And they had discovered long, long time ago. And this connection with God, exactly as a magician has a ring which connects it to a deity or to a spirit or the Aladdin's lamp. And you rub the lamp and the jinn, the spirit is coming out and then you talk. So it's a covenant. It's a deal. Every time when I rub the lamp, you show up and you ask me what is my desire. No, that's a covenant. So it's a deal. Exactly in the same way, God, the one, the Jewish God, gave to the prophets who were capable to have clairvoyance, to see, to be in contact, gave them a covenant, gave them a deal, what to do. For example for Abraham after he tested Abraham if he was willing even to kill his own son for God as a lamb as a sacrifice and Abraham was crazy enough to be ready to do that and God was honored by the devotion of Abraham and of course he didn't like he didn't let it happen he didn't allow Abraham to actually sacrifice a human being his own child And then he proposed to him the famous deal of circumcision. This is where the ritual of circumcision started for the Jews. The ritual of circumcision was a ritual given by God to Abraham to mark the Jews like they are different from the rest of the world. Then the covenant was refined with Moses. Moses had the favor to go and fast for 40 days on Mount Sinai and there to meet with God, who appeared to him in a symbolic form, like a burning bush and all that story. And then God gave to Abraham, I'm sorry, to Moses, the tablets of the law. And God described to Moses how to make the famous Ark of Alliance, which is a very mysterious device, which until today is uh, the source of so much speculation, fantasy, science fiction movies, and other such things. So the covenant started from Abraham, and then at the time of Moses it got improved. They had an Ark of Alliance, in the Ark of Alliance there were the tablets of the law, carved by the finger of God directly, and this Ark of Alliance was in the Holy of the Holies. It was in the center of the altar of the temple of David and Solomon, of course Solomon built it at the time of David, it did not exist. The famous Temple of Solomon, which resisted until the year 70. And at some point, it seems that even at the time of Jesus, those tablets were not there anymore. The Ark of Alliance was not there anymore. It is a huge investigative story as to where is the Ark of Alliance, if it is hidden somewhere, if Indiana Jones found it and took it to the American government, if it's in Ethiopia or Eritrea or whatever it's called today because it's split in two countries and all the rest. So I'm not going to go there, but that was the next covenant that you were bringing lamps to God and the priests were burning those lamps until they turned them into ashes and those were offered in front of the Ark of the Alliance, and in this way there was a sacrifice to God. Now, at this time, one day before his crucifixion, may less than 24 hours before his crucifixion, Jesus is changing the covenant. Jesus is bringing an update to the religion. In the beginning, It seems that he himself thought that it was an update to the religion of the Jews. But then there were so many non-Jews who accepted Jesus and so many Jews who did not accept Jesus that the terms of the deal changed and the religion became not only Jewish, it became universal, it became planetary. It was offered to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the Romans and to the whole world. And then, Jesus was aware that a religion does not survive without a covenant. A clear deal. Until now, Jesus was walking around as a hippie. He was healing the lepers and the blind, occasionally rising a dead man from the grave, doing, scolding the Pharisees and others, telling good things to other people, you know. But it was sort of like, okay... There came this amazing man, he walked around three years, he said good things, he said bad things, and one day they crucified him, he died. There was no, there was no legacy. What was the legacy? It is the famous Latin proverb which says, Finis coronat opus, the work is crowned by the end. There has to be, as we call it in Gurdjieffian understanding of, uh, or in yogic understanding of the laws announced by Gurdjieff and Uspensky, this is the law of three. That there has to be the third component, the final conclusion, the grand finale. This is the grand finale. Jesus is very good at this. They have died. So many people, even in spirituality, without drawing any conclusion. Like, uh, if I had three more months, I would have thought about it. Even Francis of Assisi, who was asked by the Pope specifically to write the canon of the Franciscan order, which was born out of him, was bearing his name, even Francis of Assisi died, With the canon, 75% written, not finalized. It was his disciples who finalized it in the end. That means, of course, there has to be a crown on the work. When you finish, there has to be a crown. But for that crown, you have to know when the end is coming. That means you have to have the minimum awareness, like it's time to draw the final line. The final line should not catch you unprepared. What have you got to say in the end? Mm, A joker like Osho Rajni, she said, never was born, never died, never just passed on the planet Earth. You know, like, okay, great, great covenant left by, you know. Gurdjieff, another great joker, he, what was his covenant? He was dying and he said in French, I leave you in beautiful bedsheets. I think he could have said something much wiser than that. No? At least, even if Dogen, when he passed away, the one of the first patriarchs of Zen Buddhism in Japan, he said that... Uh, death poem that when you are alive there is the energy of life and when you die there is death and so on whatever which is pretty much incomprehensible is very hermetic nevertheless Dogen left clear advice. He said the cook in the kitchen is one of the most difficult jobs in a monastery. This and that. Then he told to the different people who are surviving him: "You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, and so on." Like he he made a conclusion. He had a final thing. Well, Jesus definitely had a final. His timing was impeccable. He didn't do this on Wednesday. When he got crucified Friday, he did this on Thursday evening. Like it was the very, very last moment. Then, whatever happened with him, with the disciples, were just part of a huge spiritual test, were part of a huge spiritual event, but it couldn't be changed anymore. If you would have done it a month ago, then the priest, the Pharisees said, What? Jesus, three weeks ago, said this? And, oh man, what a ridiculous thing. Or, you know, it would have been already corruptible. Like this, he did it less than 24 hours before he was assassinated, before he was martyrized, and then it stayed until today. The Last Supper is the Ritual and symbolic and divine root of the most important ritual of the Christian church until today, which is communion, taking communion. Taking communion basically means that the devotee, as well as the priest, they believe that by a special ritual of invocation, bread And red wine become the symbolic carriers of the flesh and blood of Jesus. What I have said here is slightly blasphemic because they don't believe in the actual church. They don't believe it's a symbol. They believe it is is. They don't believe it corresponds. It's a blasphemy to say it corresponds. They believe that in the moment when the bread and wine are consecrated, they become the flesh and blood of Christ. And if you don't believe it, it's your problem. It's your lack of faith. But they are directly that. So basically, the idea was... Not circumcision, that's why the Christian community soon enough, communities soon enough they dropped circumcision because it was not necessary. That was a covenant from two stages ago. They still respected the Ten Commandments of Moses as an idea, but they didn't have the Ark of the Lions and they didn't have the Holy of the Holies from the Jewish temples. And therefore the covenant became something else God came to earth he took a human form that human form was a man made of flesh and blood and that flesh and blood man was sacrificed like the lamb which was taken to the temple for you and if you take a little bit of that lamb and put it in your mouth you've got God inside you like a graft on a tree exactly as when you take a splinter from one tree and put it into another tree and this tree becomes similar to that tree. Like a good apple tree gives you a splinter, you graft it on this, this becomes a noble apple tree because of the power of the grafting. So this communion is a graft from Jesus and you take it and basically this is the most mystical part of your yoga. You have a yoga of working, loving, following the Ten Commandments, doing this and doing that. There are many things that you do in the Christian spiritual life, but the number one of all of them is communion. Communion is your yoga session. Instead of doing 2 hours of yoga every day for a week which means sum up 14 hours of yoga practice you take communion on sunday every sunday and that is like recharging your batteries that is like bringing a new draft a new graft the graft is regrafted and regrafted and regrafted every sunday until you die and in this keeps you connected to Jesus, and keeps you connected to God. And it gives you the benefits of a lot of protection, inspiration, and other things. That's what Jesus does here. Jesus changes the deal, improves on the deal. It says, now you don't need to get circumcised. Now you don't need to go to the Holy of the Holies to give them lambs, to donate lambs. I am the lamb, and you can eat my body. And here is a ritual in which bread and wine can be consecrated as my body and my blood. And then you take those, and I'm with you, I'm there with you. It is very meaningful that this this flesh and blood of Christ... Are made of unleavened bread, that means it's wheat but without yeast. Unleavened bread, so it's wheat and grapes or wine. Only these two wheat and wine. It is, for example, known in the history of art that while he was painting the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo was having a diet of wheat. And wine, not only the one from Sunday on communion, I'm sure he took those, but in the daily life, he was eating a lot of bread, clean bread, and he was drinking wine. Those were his calories. His 2,000 calories per day or whatever he was eating, they were coming from bread and wine. He was not eating sausages, he was not eating, uh, I don't know what other things, beans or something. He was eating bread and wine, because he wanted to come as close as possible, because he was painting God, he was painting Jesus, and he wanted to be as close as possible. That one of the ways was to purify himself through diet. If bread, if simple wheat and wine are giving us the body and blood of Christ, then why not eat that in the daily life as well? And interestingly enough, Michelangelo. Did not develop a lack of vitamins, did not develop a lack of minerals, did not develop subnutrition. He managed for years to just eat bread and drink wine, and he had enough power to paint the Sistine Chapel. Therefore, here it's very interesting how Jesus has chosen as carriers of his graft what did he choose? Because he could have asked people to eat something else. Like, my mind doesn't come now. Chrysanthemum flowers or something. And say, this is my body, this is my blood or something. But he chose bread and wine, red wine. Which seem to be very daily life things. No? So how important are they? That's why it's very difficult to see, because then you go to some people and they say, I suffer from intolerance to gluten, and I cannot eat bread. Then you cannot eat the body of Christ. Do you want gluten-free communion? What the heck is this? You know, like, if Jesus chose that bread and wine can represent him, and therefore God, because he represented God in his own turn, then there must be something special about those things. So he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knew an ordeal will come. The disciples never believed it. Even in that evening, the disciples were rather stupid. They behaved stupid and in, in ignorant. No? And although he keeps on saying it and now it's imminent, And he says, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover. Why? Because this Passover, plus the ordeal to come, this was the climax. This was the fulfillment of his mission. He basically says, I came for this. All the three years and all the 30 years which I lived before, it's just the preparation for this. This evening is something which is carved in the causal body of this planet. This is the archetypal moment. From where a whole big thing is coming. Is it the only one? No. No. The Hindus had fire ceremonies. And others. Different civilizations had their own things. The Jewish culture had this thing. With the lamps brought to the temple for the Passover. And all that. So. So. Um, He says very clearly, this is the most important time. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So indeed, he never had another meal, I suppose. And then he was crucified. And then he was resurrected. And when he was resurrected, we are not told that he ate anything. He didn't even want people to touch his body in those days and then he ascended to heaven, and basically he said, he says, I will be in heaven 50 days from now, and then this will become the ritual which will mark a good part of mankind. A good part of mankind will evaluate its own spirituality according to this thing which I show you tonight, which we do tonight. So until it finds fulfillment... In the kingdom of God, like, would you do it? And in the kingdom of God, it is fulfilled. Like God says, yes, of course. Of course, this is the new covenant. It was signed by Jesus in my name. Because Jesus was sent by me, and he was doing my work. So in this way, it will find its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. What a confidence what a humbleness, what a thing that you do something and to say this will find its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. No? Like what a trust in God that what I do will be sanctioned by God with approval. That I'm doing something for posterity. After taking the cup, he gave thanks. He gave thanks. Thank you God for whatever you gave us, that we are eating the produce of the earth and all that. So he gave thanks. That was still there. He didn't forget to do that first. And he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So basically, either you say that there is some vine in heaven, which is an interpretation, or that Jesus will not be physically around here until Satya Yuga is coming, until the kingdom of God, until the second coming of Christ. And then if Jesus is here, he can have a cup of wine, a cup of the fruit of the vine. But in heaven, it's only virtual. It's a subtle energy. It's not a physical thing. And therefore, he is right, Literally. So he divided the wine, which traditionally is considered that it has to be red wine, even if it is only for the synchronicity, for the similarity with blood, with the red of the blood. And he took bread, gave thanks. Again, first he consecrated it by giving thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. First of all, it has something nostalgic. Do it in remembrance of me. It's not a manipuristic ritual, like you have to do this as the seal in flesh of the covenant between God and the prophet Abraham or something. It's do it in remembrance of me. There is a nostalgia of the passing of Jesus on the earth. So it's clearly more anahata. And then he says, this is my body given for you. Like he doesn't say this is a symbol of my body. This is, he says, this is my body. And if you take Jesus to the letter, then it, is, it means exactly this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So again, he says it clearly. This cup is the new covenant. I have been, long time ago, appalled to see that, for example, even in the Catholic Church, which is a traditionalistic church, when they give communion, they just give the wafer, They just give the bread. But the people who go to take communion, they actually don't drink the wine. Why only the body and not the blood? It's completely not canonic. If you'll go in a Russian church or in a Greek church, the priest is coming with a cup and they give they have a silver spoon and they take a part of the bread and they soak it in the wine. And they put it in your mouth. Is bread and wine. Not only the bread. And then in the Catholic Church. The priest is drinking of the wine. But why not me? Why am I not allowed to drink of the wine? Because Jesus says it's for me. It has been spilled for me. No. It's something is a little bit crazy there. And I uh, it sounds to me like wrong in many ways. So he says this cup is the new covenant In my blood, which is poured out for you. It cannot be more clear than this. Like now, there is no need to kill lambs. Now, there is no need to cut foreskins. Now, there is no need for any of that. Jesus has given his body and blood, and that's good enough. And you are eating it in this transfigured form, in which, if you call it correctly, the bread and the red wine other blood the body and the blood of Christ you take it you can take communion every day you can take communion once a week you can take communion once a year and thus it is very important and suddenly he changes register he says this is the covenant so he's he's very clear other gospels describe this uh, event from a different angle, showing other words slightly different and showing highlighting other events. Therefore, you cannot rely only on the Gospel of Luke. You have to read about the Last Supper from all the Gospels to kind of have a stereoscopic view of how this event was happening. This is what Luke writes for it. Please don't forget that Luke was the doctor which accompanied Paul in his pilgrimage to Rome and through Europe, through Greece and so on, and Luke had never met Jesus, and Paul had never met Jesus except in spirit. And therefore, these people are telling the story second-hand, third-hand, not Directly, So, of course, they tell what was accepted that happened, but some details may have been forgotten. That's why it's interesting to read John, to read Matthew, because those people were there physically. So, Jesus declares clearly, this is my body, bread is my body, red wine is my blood. And then he changes radically. And he says, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Like he, you see, he uses, you don't know what to say, you know, because it was said before that Satan was possessing Judas. So Judas was so alienated, so hypnotized, so gone in his madness that you see even Jesus is making some slight allusion. He is um, um, almost ironic. He is alluding to the fact and he says one of you who is here at this table is going to sell me out. Like a sort of alarm signal. Last minute Judas wake up. What are you about to do? Even when Jesus is almost slapping him on the face, because it's quite obvious at some point that he talks about him, Judas does not give up, which shows exactly that he was gone over. His decision was taken, and the decision was not taken by him. He was just a pawn, a very, very small pawn in this The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. So he says, there's nothing new for me. I told you anyway that I'm going to go. But woe to that man who betrays him. So he says, although I'm going and this is my mission. No, you can always ask, what if Judas would have stood up and said, Jesus, this morning I promised to the priests to sell you out. Now I realize you know about it because you are... You are doing like this to my nose, you know. You are teasing me. So obviously you know something. And still you are going on with it and you are kind of insulting me indirectly and provoking me and it's like I can't take it. I'm going crazy here. But Judas was not going crazy. He was crazy already and he was gone. He was possessed. He was not using his own mind and senses. Because otherwise a normal person would have said, this guy seems to know what's happening. No? And it's like, if he knows and doesn't do more, doesn't defend himself, doesn't know, like what the heck is happening? No? So Jesus says, I had to go anyway because I'm the sacrificial lamb. I have to die for God. But what if they just arrested me on the street without the support of one of you. What if none of you would betray me? Would that be much more elegant? So he says, I will go. It has, it has been decreed. God has decreed. Because Jesus prayed, please take this away from me. And God didn't take it away. Which means God said, no, 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 just go and do it. You have to do it. This sacrifice, it's a cruel ritual of sacrifice of human sacrifice, which will have to be done. Otherwise, this wine and this bread will not become your flesh and blood. The covenant will not work because there has not been a sacrifice for it. No, it has to be done right. I want a new covenant with mankind and for this you have to serve as an instrument for it. And Jesus didn't like it But he was ready to do it. But he said, why does it have to be done with one of you being a shithead? One of my own people. I understand if I was walking on the street and then ten soldiers came and arrested me. And what to do? They arrested me in public and they took me and they beat the shit out of me or they killed me or whatever they did. And probably that's what would have happened anyway if Judas. Would have stood back, but he didn't stand back. That's the curious thing, which shows the extent of what is meant when it says that the devil entered in Judas. So he says, "But woe to the man who betrays him. Because there something is happening. If you put your hand on red-hot coal, you get burned. You say, yeah, but I was serving a cosmic purpose. Yeah, when you touch red hot metal, you get badly, 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 badly burned. No, but even if it was for a cosmic purpose, still it happens. So Jesus says, I don't have anything with Judas. But the fact that he became the symbol of that, it's not at all good for him. Woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this. No, like, it was so obvious that they were talking about it. They said, "Who?" now he says, it's one of us. There were 13 people in that room, for God's sake. No? There was Jesus with the 12 apostles. There might have been a few other people, but probably according to the habit, they were not sitting at the same table with Jesus. There were probably some secondary stuff. In some other table or around the room. But these 13 people were the main characters. And Jesus says, one who sits at the same table, his hand is on the same table with me. No, the other people said they looked around and they said, who is he talking? It's one of us, 12 people here. And then they look at each other and they said, is it you? Is it me? No. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. No, like, again, stupidity. The kings, Jesus said to them, that's another one which showed, no, like, if you are less patient than Jesus, you would get a little bit desperate with how stupid people could be. But anyhow, Jesus knew what planet this is, and that he came for these baboons to elevate them, and therefore he was willing to do this sacrifice. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them, they call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the ones who rule, like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So it's very magic. First of all he says who will be the biggest it will be the one who will do the best karma yoga. no? The one who serves. Because that's what service is in the Christian understanding. It's karma yoga more or less. So he says serve humanity. That's what makes you great. No, who is the bigger? The one who serves or the one who eats at the table? No, it's like... And he says I am among you and I am serving you. In other gospels he says I did not come to be served but to serve. I'm here to serve you. This is the mentality of many gurus in India, Tibet, in the world. That they want to serve. They want to be of service. And, of course, he speaks symbolically when he says, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me. So he speaks about transmission. I have been given the kingdom of heaven, and I'm making you part of it. But remember the ritual Was not yet fulfilled. Jesus is promising, but he is promising before he got crucified. His promise is becoming total only after he had the patience, the endurance, the humility to go through the crucifixion, the total surrender to go through death. Only then his promise becomes valid, because, like right now, he is promising a kingdom which if he would fail the ritual of crucifixion he wouldn't be able to give it but he trusts that he will go through with it so in a certain way he speaks in the future Simon Simon so he talks about Peter it always seems that Peter has a bit of big manipura and in the group he was one of the natural leaders of the group he was more grumpy from the beginning did, want, did not want to follow jesus he was uh, he played hard to get and so on and then when finally got in the group, he was like older than most of the others, more grumpy, more manipuristic, more hardworking type you know and then because probably he had some uh, strong manipura, people looked upon him. As a natural leader. Maybe he was big physically. In those days it mattered. Who had physical strength. People who had physical strength. They were natural leaders. Simply because a lot of the things were. Decided by physical strength. And thus. This Simon Peter. He was. And therefore Jesus addresses him. Like he addresses the chief of a class. In school. You know the, the leading pupil. In a group of students, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Please realize, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Like Jesus knew, there had been plans, there had been a discussion, there has been a deal. Jesus asked and some things were given to him and some things were not given to him because he asked for too much. So there was a bargain in heaven. Satan came and said, now that we are going to have this thing, give me this and give me this. And Satan asked that Peter should be trashed because he was a powerful leader. He was a powerful leader and the history shows that the whole Catholic Church is built on the back of Peter. Peter and Paul but Peter is quoted first. The Basilica from Vatican is the Saint Peter Basilica not the Saint Paul Basilica. It's Peter and therefore who was crucified upside down and all that and therefore he says but I have prayed for you Simon that your faith May not fail. Can you realize that the faith of Simon Peter. Did not depend on himself. It was a crossfire between the devil. And Jesus. Jesus said. Let's trash that one also. And Jesus said. No, 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 no. You will have me. That's good enough. God, please help Peter to stay centered. You realize how much of our attitude depends on other people, how much it depends on what is decided in heaven. Peter was made to be Peter by Jesus and whoever else prayed for him. Peter by himself didn't mean much. There was a lot of grace for this. Realize what is being said between the lines here. He simply said, Simon, Simon, the devil has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. It did fail. In that night, he denied Jesus three times. But after 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, he recovered. Because in that panic... In that panic, many people lose it. How many people have lost their faith when Agama was in trouble? A lot. They ran away like scared birds. Didn't come back. There were people who were in a holiday in Europe. They never even returned to pick up their gear, pick up their stuff. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. So their faith has gone because Satan has sifted them like wheat. And in the case of Peter, Jesus mentions him specially and he says, with you, I competed for you. I auctioned for you. I prayed for you and I said, no, 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 no. Here, I won't give this one. I won't allow this one. That So Simon, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, he knew that he will have an eclipse and then come back after. It will take 48 hours, 72 hours before he will come to his senses. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Like a graft, you know, at least you will have faith. Give it back to the others and say, guys, don't you remember? Three days ago we were with this man and he, he raised Lazarus from his grave, for God's sake, just not even ten days ago. Are you nuts? No? Like, strengthen your brothers. This is how it is. Faith is so frail in this world, and as you can see, it comes from the prayer. It comes from God. So when you have faith in Shiva, when you have faith in your yoga, when you have faith in different things, Where does it come from? Because it comes via the Guru and via advanced yogis. You get faith from Ramakrishna and Shivananda, and it comes from the cosmic consciousness. It's a gift. This faith is a gift, so value it. It's a very, very unique and precious gift. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. They did not really know what was coming. When Jesus was arrested, he was taken in a very bad way. He was insulted, he was mocked, he was hit. They were very aggressive. It was not like you are guilty of subverting the order in the state of Israel and we'll put you to prison. And then a judge will come and will say, Yeah, they were right. You are condemned to death. No. If it would be like this, there will be no emotional component to it. But when Jesus was in those 24 hours which followed, it was like maximum pressure. Maximum pressure the emotion, the psychological pressure, everything was running at inimaginable levels, unimaginable levels. And Peter, who just in the evening now promises, I'm going to prison with you to death, he was not able. He was not able. So Jesus says, it's okay if you come back even after three days. It's still okay. I understand you cannot take the maximum pressure. When it will be in the maximum pressure, only Jesus was the one who was still lucid and he knew what was happening. For the rest, it was just a rush governed by the devil in which all the emotions were hitting the fan and everything was happening like in a bad dream, Very quickly, quickly, wow, no, wow, and before you knew it, it was over. And Jesus was dead. And then the resurrection, of course, came and changed everything. So Peter was manipuristic. He knew that Jesus kept on saying that something bad will happen. And he said, "Okay, if something bad will happen, I will go with you in prison. You will be in prison. I will be in prison. If they condemn you to death, let them condemn me to death. But it never happens quietly like this it happened in a hysterical way in an insane way it happened like uh, in a speed in a trance in a you know and before you knew it is like uh, uh no no i don't know that guy no the fear came the he didn't have the time to think it over jesus answered i tell you peter before the rooster crows today you will deny three times that you know me Like, again, clairvoyance, again that omniscience. How did you know, how did he know that just before this, a rooster was going to crow? These are the omens, the synchronicities. Nothing is coincidental. From the third eye of Jesus, everything was go and find a man with a pot of water and follow him and go to the owner of the house and say Jesus will come to spend the Passover here. And the guy said, Oh, I'm honored. Of course, come, do. I'll arrange the room. Like, how did he know? This is the omniscience, the all knowing nature of God. It's the same here. Now, Jesus, the gates are open. And of course, Jesus will be taken quickly, 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 crucified, beaten. Uh, uh, there's no time to think about it. It's all like a rush. Even then, he managed to keep the consciousness of what was happening, the awareness. But how he knew with Peter, what a clarity. The rooster will crow three times. And then before that, you already denied me three times. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Remember the winter before, he sent them to preach through the villages of Israel and they slept in people's villages. They were wintering, because in the winter, things were always very difficult for everybody. And in the winter, he sent them away. And then he said, how did it go when you were alone without me? Nothing, they answered. You did, did lack like anything? Nothing. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Again, Jesus says, the terms are changing. That was with me being here, an experiment to teach you something. Now you will be alone. You need to have the bag, the purse. And even he says something about a sword, which he obviously doesn't mean literally. Because the disciples of Jesus were never wearing swords. So the sword, in the Jewish mysticism... Is a symbol of the tongue, that your tongue is cutting like a sword. And like you argue with people, you tell them you are not right. This is a demonic thing, you know? And like in that time he didn't say that they should, they should be gentle. But here it says, Now you have to put people to their place, show them what the truth is. It is written. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. He will be numbered with the transgressors. This is from the prophet Isaiah. like He will be considered a common criminal you would accept that Jesus cannot be put together with two thieves, for God's sake. He was crucified, maybe they were not crucified in the same day, but he was crucified more or less together with two thieves. What's a philosopher, a metaphysician, a wizard, a prophet, even if he is contested as a prophet, what does he do among common criminals? Because he cannot be put. He should have been crucified in a different end of Jerusalem. Or something, you know, he should have been put somewhere. This is a different case. Or he should have been killed in another way. You know, why crucified as common criminal? The Romans couldn't care less. Because the Romans, whoever disturbed the Roman Empire, zap, they killed them. And they had the crucifixion system and it was working and that was it. No? And it was scary enough for people to see and to tell the people don't do like him because you will get the same punishment as him. It was good for discipline. But the Jews, for the Jews, how would you have that two criminals are crucified and Jesus is between them, among them, in the middle of them? It's kind of not acceptable. The prophet Isaiah saw it with his clairvoyance. And he said, he was numbered with the transgressors, like with the criminals, with the lawbreakers. And I tell you, says Jesus, that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. He could feel. Now he had done the transmission, the new covenant. Now things were rolling. It was the last straight line before the explosive things will happen. The disciples said, See, Lord, there are two swords. That is enough, he replied. They were having two swords. The disciples were clearly not understanding enough. When they, Jesus was arrested, Peter, who was the more manipuristic one, took one of the swords and cut the ear of one of the priests of one of the soldiers from the temple, trying to make a sort of a commando to free Jesus. And Jesus did not accept this solution. And he told him, Peter, put the sword down. No, it's not going like this. That's not how I'm going. And thus, uh, they did not understand, but he was telling them, there was a time when I was here. Now you'll have to go in the world, and you'll see there are other rules there. A little bit more, just before he gets to be arrested, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. It has been said before that every night in those five days while he was in Jerusalem, every night he was sleeping in the house of a devotee, a place in the Mount of Olives, which is on the eastern side of the old city of Jerusalem. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. But they didn't understand, you know, like, even in the last minute, he said, pray. If they come and find you in prayer, you will be more lucid. You will be less scared by the devil. You will be, you know, like, pray. Somehow they did not understand. Tomorrow it was the Passover. And they just had the Passover dinner. The unleavened bread. People, I mean, although Jesus was telling them something bad is going to happen and so on. Funny. All of them were like hypnotized. None of them said, man, Jesus, please, let's cut the crap. You know, sit down. Now enough is enough. You know, you've been mumbling about this thing. You know, tell me what you see. Tell me what's going to happen, when and how. Tell me as much as you can tell me. I want details. Why? Because I want to preempt it in some way. I want to do something. I want to be prepared. They didn't. He kept on saying ominous things. And somehow nobody was prepared. Even now coming to this, they were tired. People were going to bed early in those days. It must have been what? 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. It was dark already. People were not having enough candles, lamps and so on to stay up the whole night like we do now with electricity and all that. And he said to them, like, it's evening prayer and then we sleep. So he said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. So he sometimes liked to pray alone. This we have been said many times. And he was kneeling doing Vajrasana, doing whatever, the Dandasana, awareness, pose, or whatever. He was in a pose on his knee and he was doing it A stone. How much can you throw a stone? 50 meters, maybe 100 meters. So he was not far from them, but a bit far. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. This is the archetypal prayer. When somebody is confronted with such things, you should always refer to Jesus, because he was not an idiot, he was not a glutton for punishment. He says, Now I'm going to bite the dust, and I know you want, and uh, so be it, and na na na, see you in hell or whatever. You know, he was not having any of this. He was intelligent, he was balanced, he was having common sense. Any common sense man would want the ordeal to not happen, because it was not an easy thing. So he prayed clearly. He said, Father, if you are willing, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done. This is the surrender on Manipura. This is the perfect karma yoga, the perfect consecration, the perfect detachment. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him that we are not being told in the other Gospels, that obviously, while he was miserable like this, like, please, please, if it's possible, take this from me, he was strengthened. Like, he also saw the other side. Like, look, when you will have done this, the world will be a very different place because of what you have done. Like, it's it's worth it. You no, know, there is some, it's not easy But it's not just uh, some nonsensical thing for which you have to suffer. So he was shown the other side of the coin as well. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Actually, in one of the Gospels, we are telling that there were drops of blood. We know that Ramakrishna... When he was in some states of trance, usually related to Kali, he was seen by his disciples and by Sarada Devi sweating blood. Like somehow in this rising of Kundalini, somehow in this Shakti Chalana becomes so intense, especially if it happens physically, that the body is like electroshocked with a hundred thousand volts or something like this. And simply physiologically, it is brought to the limit of its endurance. And one of the things was that people have seen Ramakrishna surrounded by a blue light, like electrified, electrocuted. And both in the case of Jesus and in the case of Ramakrishna, they have seen drops of blood. The Gospel of Luke at least in this translation, it says that they were, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. But another gospel says that he actually sweated blood, that it was colored in red. And it was not sweat. It was blood. Because imagine the intensity. Now He was having a prayer, which was a rising of Kundalini in which half of him wanted to run away, and half of him knew that he had to go through it. Remember, Jesus in this moment, he could have still run away. If Jesus in that moment just packed his gear, and started walking in the night, eastward, southward, anywhere, they wouldn't have found him half an hour later, and then all that follows wouldn't have happened. Even if he hid for five days, then he will appear after the Passover. The momentum had passed already. It was a different stage. The energy was not there. But now when the energy was there, imagine how split he must have been and how much bhavana he must have had about what his sacrifice would bring to the world so that 51% of him Will decide to stay there and not to run. Not to run. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. So he told them, Pray. They prayed five minutes, then they got sleepy. It was their sleeping time. Like dogs, they fell asleep. You know, it was the time to sleep. This shows, again, how prepared they were for what happened next. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The temptation was his. For them, what did it matter? All of them ran away, and we are told that one of them witnessed the crucifixion. Together with his mother, and together with Mary Magdalene. Two women, and one man, and that man was John. John somehow sneaked in, and he stayed. He was not there, probably in the daytime, or hidden in the crowd, and when they put him on the cross, he was there with the two Marys, Mary the mother of Christ, and Mary Magdalene. He was there, holding them by the shoulders, and giving them some manly strength, while they were watching, how this man was slowly dying on the cross as he was there. So it's like they were not, you know, they were not big heroes. These were some fishermen from Galilee, one tax collector, one, like they were not big heroes. And Jesus told them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. It's exactly like, you know, maybe I have been asked sometimes to make efforts to stay up in the night, to... You always say, Why tonight? Why tonight? You know, like I feel really crushed tonight. Should I wake up at two o'clock and do my equinox meditation in the middle at three o'clock in the morning? You know, you don't want to. You can understand these people because, you know, Jesus told them maybe they did not understand why suddenly he has become so needy, why suddenly he has become like he insists on this thing. To them, there was nothing. There was a ritual, which they didn't see as a ritual. Jesus told them, I'll give you the kingdom of heaven, which God gave to me, blah, 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 blah. It was all among the grand sayings which he was telling. This guy was a mad prophet, and he was promising a lot of things, and he was using big words and saying, but they could not understand. And even in the night when it came, and he said, now things are... But obviously, Jesus did not tell them, man, at nine o'clock, they will come for me. Because, you know, if I would have been Peter or something, I wouldn't have listened to Jesus' bullshit. I would have taken him on my back and ran with him out of Jerusalem. You know, I would have said, you can beat me, you can punish me, you can do whatever you want, I won't let you. It's obvious that Jesus, in all this raving and in all this uh, ominous, threatening environment, he never said really concretely. He never prophesied concretely, concretely, concretely. He was very threatening and ominous, but not really, because the disciples, even in the, if they would have known this is the last evening that you'll ever spend with Jesus. Then most of them would have said, you know what, we can sit in a painful position, and we will not fall asleep. You know, we'll sit in Vajrasana, we'll sit in... And we will not fall asleep. But they didn't realize that the lightning, that the hammer was falling already. They they couldn't realize that. So, this is why they were very confused. Jesus was so lucid and they were confused. No. This is, I could insist much more on this paragraph, but I will not, because it's pretty extreme. And I wish that all of you who listen to these satsangs and who are looking into the teachings of Jesus, this is a part which is hardly yogic. Like, how many yogis have been crucified? How many yogis had to endure? You know, like, Maybe there has been some persecution against Sri Aurobindo or against Swami Vivekananda or against Ramakrishna or against Swami Shivananda, But it has never been really, really, really much and bitter. They did not get even beaten. I'm not talking about crucified. Yeah? They did not get like, how much have they been persecuted? It's because all these yogis Svatmarama, and the sage Geranda and uh, Matsyendranath, and Gorakshanath, like all the big ones, Patanjali himself and others. You no, know, they have not been persecuted. Maybe a little bit when they trespassed and they pushed the karma of other people a bit too much. And then they stand, stood back and they said, ah, oops, oops, not so much. Yeah, But they were not. You no, know? So this story... That how did Jesus behave that he himself wanted to get rid of this ordeal? How did Peter and the other 11 or 10 behave? And the fact that they were confused, shitty, then they were cowardly. They were bragging, I'm going with you to prison, to death itself, blah, 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 blah. You know, they didn't know what they were talking about. No? And how the events happened. That a man who said, I will go with you to prison and in death, he didn't manage to fulfill. On the contrary, he recanted, he disowned Jesus like this. While he was a big rooster, you know, he said, I'm going to death if necessary with you. How can a person be so split? No? So, these events, I'm giving some metaphysical explanations, but not so much yogic explanations Because I really wish and bless all of you who are going to listen to these things that you will not fall into such events. Such events are very rare and you are not the Messiah. You are not Jesus. Most of you definitely are not. And I hope you will not go through such dramatic, tragical events of martyrdom and persecution and others. And that's why here we are trying to explain the metaphysical things that Jesus was right and he could see, and the, the devil was riding hard. And you saw the devil even asked for the head of Peter. No, the devil said, I want Peter, I want Simon, I want to sift him as wheat, said Jesus. And Jesus said, No, no, you can't have that one, you know, even if I get two more kicks in the ass, that one will be left alone. No? So there was a bargain that every all these events have an explanation in heavens, that we human beings are not aware of many things which are happening in heavens and which are decided in advance. But on the other hand, while we explain the magic of Jesus, there is not too much to explain for the yogis Because very seldom will yogis be put in such situations. And I really bless you and wish that you shall not be put in such situations. Because although these are very interesting times, as the Chinese say, and it's like, of course, it was a great thing for Peter and the others. It meant the universe to them. Nevertheless, these things are very rare, very difficult very challenging. And if you want to be a yogi like Yogi Geranda or like Yogi Patanjali, just stay in your hermitage. You do your yoga practice. You reach your states of samadhi. You get to a knowledge of God. And all the rest, may it be for you. Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi. May you reach peace. May you have a spiritual evolution which happens in peace. Wisdom, knowledge, love, divine light. And I hope you will not be passing too much through such events. I, for one, have had a bit of a more challenging and agitated life. And when I was living in communist Romania, I was confronted with similar events, which some of them shattered me, some of them strengthened me, then I myself have seen events like the events which I mentioned from three years ago where there was a lot of betrayal and a lot of deception and a lot of lies and a lot of things. And I know that sometimes people can be tested in bitter ways, I included, but again... Uh, These teachings about Jesus, it's more like to see his fortitude, his clarity, and to see how the normal people are failing miserably when confronted with these kinds of things. And at the same time, this is not much about yoga. Because I hope that in your life, as yogis, as students of spirituality... You will not be confronted with this kind of thing because it will be more easy for you to do things in the way of Patanjali and in the way of Yogananda or in other similar ways, therefore it there follows the moment where Jesus will be arrested in the moment when Jesus gets arrested is like all hell breaks loose. It's exactly like a dam which holds water, breaks. In the next one hour, it's madness. It's madness. That means it's just a force of nature and things are going totally out of control. In the same way, once the hell was allowed to break loose, the demonic energy is so big that it's like nothing makes sense, only Jesus is the only one who makes sense. He keeps up the Shiva consciousness, the pure consciousness, and he answers with common sense and in a very straightforward way. everybody else, everybody else, including Peter and he they are like possessed by the devil. they are scared by the devil they are it's an energy which is insane. Therefore, this is typical, and again, I hope you will not get to see it with your own eyes in your life. You are going to read about it with Jesus' example, and know it, that archetypally it has been there in history, but I pray that it shall not happen to you. That's why I don't op- want to open that door today. We'll open it in our next satsang. We almost finished chapter number 22. We will start with a shloka or with a verset number 47 in chapter 22, where it is like Jesus is arresting, the arresting of Jesus. With this, let us stop for tonight. Thank you all for joining. And soon, in three, four sessions, we will conclude the important message about Jesus enough for tonight